Welcome to Catalyze. I'm your host, Benny Klein, from the class of 24. For today's guest, I spoke with Nick Anderson from the class of 2012. Nick is a podcast producer for GBH in Boston, Massachusetts, where he worked on the PBS Masterpiece podcast. He also is the senior producer of Ministry of Ideas, a quote, small show about big ideas. Nick and I talked about our shared experiences on move-in day with the Carolina heat and humidity, the challenges from working from home, especially when you have pets, and how he learned the French word for Wi-Fi. To hear about these stories and more, please enjoy Nick Anderson. So I know you're in Boston right now. Uh, is it correct that you're pretty close to Cambridge and, and Harvard in that area? Um, actually, I live, since I haven't been into the office in two years, um, I operate out of my house in Cambridge. So yeah, we're I'm about a mile from Harvard Square. And my house uh, technically is in both Cambridge and Somerville. Um, New England has very old city borders. And as part of that, um, the city border goes through my dining room. So I pay taxes oh, very nice. proportionally in both cities, um, which is annoying to say the least. Yeah, that's that seems just like another hassle. But um, it sounds like, did you move your office at home? And do you have everything going on there? Is it an elaborate space you've got? or? Um, I mean, I'm in my kitchen. Uh, my office there is my go. kitchen. Uh, in February 2020, my fiance and I bought um, a table that we were going to have as a second prep table in our kitchen. And then a month later, I moved home to work. So um, I have, yeah, I have all of my stuff from my, most of my stuff from my office um, in terms of, you know, laptop mount and second monitor, keyboard, etc. But um, it's also stacked on top of a bunch of cookbooks. So um, it's uh, it's not as elaborate as it could be. I came home to record this since I live in Durham. And so I, uh, I have a, a chair barricading the door. It looks like a scene out of a movie because my dog will rush at the door, bump its head through and come and say hi and didn't want that while we were recording. Oh, I mean, I can't promise that my cat won't come. He hates Zoom. This isn't Zoom, so hopefully he won't notice. But um, he definitely, he's participated in a lot of my video calls because he doesn't like when I pay attention to things that aren't him. So um, you've had such a strong theme of journalism throughout your career, but can we go back to high school? Maybe you're the editor of the school newspaper or is this, did this not come about till college? Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because um, I recently helped my parents um, downsize from their, uh, the house I lived in as a kid to a smaller house in my hometown in suburban Detroit. And uh, my mom doesn't throw anything away. That's where I get a lot of that from. And so we found um, the first article I ever wrote, which was in the school newspaper in fourth grade. Um, so it was definitely a thing I liked doing for a very long time. I always really interested in journalism in a sense, but I just liked asking people about what they did and sort of liked knowing information. And so I don't know if I ever specifically had like a vision of wanting to be in journalism, but I, um, yeah, you know, I worked on the newspaper elementary school. I restarted um, with a group of friends, the middle school and newspaper that had been sort of on hiatus for a couple of years. And then, yeah, I was an editor at my high school newspaper and wrote all the time. So I was always really interested in journalism and eventually, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know when the pivot was to audio journalism. Um, I grew up listening to public radio with my family. And so I don't know if it was my goal in high school, but it was definitely my long-term goal in college. 
Okay, so then you get to you get to UNC. You're involved in the Daily Tar Heel, and uh, I'd love to hear what your experience was like trying to decide majors and um, just going through what was school like. The first semester, I got involved with the Daily Tar Heel right away, and that was um, the 2008 election. And so it was super fun to work for a news organization that was covering that. The state and national desk was. North Carolina was a swing state that year. I mean, it always is a swing state, but it was a particularly competitive swing state that year. So we had a lot of reporters um, covering the election. I wrote, I was writing for the features desk, which basically we got to do whatever we wanted. And so I wrote a piece about um, former Senator Kay Hagan, whose daughter had taken a leave of absence from UNC to work on her campaign. And so I got to talk to the Senator and I got to talk to her daughter about, you know, deciding to not, be in school for a semester and she ended up winning that race. So that was pretty cool. Um, and, you know, we wrote stories about like Neil's deli and, and Carborough had a McCain and an Obama hot dog. And so they had like different, I think the <laughs> Obama hot dog had like pineapple on it, like a pineapple slaw because of the Hawaiian connection. The McCain one, I can't remember specifically, but um, it was, you know. Did you have to try it as part of the job, as part of the paper? Um, well, I, I did not since I did not write the story, but um, okay. it was uh, a reporter very eagerly tried them. Um, but it was it. It was definitely like a fun, it was a fun semester to start a paper like the Daily Tario, especially one at the time that, I mean, I know it's still the paper of record for Orange County and for the university, but, you know, we print it every day. Um, we were the only people covering both a lot of university meetings, but also a lot of town meetings. And it was just a great way to get to know a place that I had not spent a lot of time in, in terms of the academics of it all. Um, so I took a fantastic first year seminar with a professor in the music department, John Finson, who's no longer there, but, um, it was called music on stage and screen. And I thought it was going to be about film soundtracks, which is what I really, I love film soundtracks. And it ended up being about, um, opera, um, which was cool. I mean, I, our textbooks for the semester were um, opera libretti, and we would come up with different creative projects every opera we listened to and analyzed. So, for example, we listened to Carmen, read the libretti, libretto, and then um, we had to write a compelling legal argument using musical passages as to whether or not Don Jose is guilty of killing Carmen or not. Um, <laughs> so, like, that was super fun and nerdy, and I ended up actually... Yeah. Um, that professor became the second read on my history thesis on mid-century, mid-20th century American opera. Um, so uh, that class was really, you know, they always, the language around first-year seminars is always, oh, I could change your college career, but actually mine right. did because I ended up yeah. doing a summer project with the Morehead Foundation, Morehead Kane Foundation about opera in Europe. And then I had an independent study with this professor and then he became my second read. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time I was definitely thinking about journalism and also thinking about history um, as a major because my um, editors at the Daily Tar Heel were really explicit that um, I could major in journalism if I wanted to, but I shouldn't major in reporting because um, I could get all the reporting I wanted out of working at the DTH and I should learn as much as I possibly could from the multimedia department. So I guess they were right. I work in audio. So they nailed, I mean, I, they also had an audio major that I should have probably done, but I didn't think about it at the time. Um, right. But yeah, no. So it would, um, I took their advice to heart. Um, so I guess, I mean, having not thought about it in quite some time, I guess that first semester was pretty formative, even if I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. I think first year seminars and just sometimes classes in general, in my two years of experience at UNC, when you, when you go in and, and, uh, 
aren't exactly sure what to expect. It can go one of two ways. So it sounded like you got the best way. Uh, could you touch a little bit about the International Journalism Exchange Program? I mean, you were in Paris in 2010? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, there definitely was a point of my undergraduate career where my Marie Kane advisor was, you know, like encouraging me to take advantage of all the um, scholarships opportunities. And so I knew I wanted to study abroad and I really wanted to work on my French. I was a French minor and I, you know, you can take language classes as long as you want, but until you're living in the environment, it's really hard to think about. I mean, <laughs> the greatest example I can think of is my roommates in Paris were both French professionals and um, early on in my time there, one of them came out of his room and he said, oh, le wifi ne marche pas. And I was like, the what doesn't work? He's like, le wifi ne marche pas. And I was like, oh, Wi-Fi. I've just never heard a French person say Wi-Fi because that's not a thing you say in French class when you're learning the basic verbs. Um, right. So I had been lucky enough as part of the fact that I was no longer as concerned about funding my undergraduate education. A friend of mine from high school was a German exchange student my junior year of high school. And he was like, oh, we should backpack around Europe before you start college. So after I did my summer of Outward Bound in the Sierra Nevadas, I came home for a day and then flew to Germany and spent the summer, the rest of the summer backpacking on Europe with Freedom and my friend. Um, and so I loved Brussels, which like nobody likes Brussels, but I really enjoyed Brussels when we visited it. And so I was trying really, really hard to do something in Brussels for that summer. But the journalism school had just started a partnership with Sciences Po, which is a major institution of political science in Paris. Um, it was a great semester. I don't know how much journalism I learned. Um, like I, I was in a bunch of journalism classes. Um, the instructors were great. It was incredible to live in Paris. Um, my French got really good. Uh, but the program itself, the journalism school at Sciences Po is pretty new. It was mostly a graduate institution. We didn't have a lot of exposure to that. Um, and also, uh, the UNC study abroad department, um, didn't particularly care about like where I was living and they're like, we really hope you find a place to live. And I was like, I, <laughs> so do okay. I. Um, right. So I ended up living in my apartment with Super But I mean, from a writing perspective, I wrote a column for the DTH. I was the study abroad columnist that semester. And like, that was really great. I'm really proud of the writing I did in that, in those six months. I got yeah. to, um, you know, live in a foreign city for six months. Uh, yeah, and that, all of that was great. So take, take me to Carolina. What were some apprehensions you had? What what were your stressors in college? Yeah, um, I definitely probably spent too much time at the Daily Tar Heel, especially when I was an editor my junior year. We joked right. that I should just pay rent there because I spent so little time in my house. And the production schedule was incredible. It was really cool to work at a functioning daily newspaper, but it also was incredibly stressful. And I my grades could have been better certain semesters because I was too focused on getting the, getting the paper out the door every night. I was training for a marathon in my junior year. So like that was a major stressor. I had never run a marathon before. I'd never run a half marathon before. I still haven't. Um, and so that was a bit of a, that was something I was super worried you're, about. It sounds like you're the classic underachiever. <laughs> I mean, come on, you're interviewing more Kane scholars. What are you expecting? Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I definitely was, it was the kind of thing where, you know, the foundation really stresses, and I really appreciate the foundation for this, that, like, what are you interested in? Let's help you figure out a way to do that. I mean, you know, I, I was majoring in music history and journalism, so clearly I wasn't interested in making money, but um, 
I definitely was worried about finding a way to do something that mattered might be the wrong word, but that, you know, finding a way to do something in my career, like finding a way to like take what I had been learning and, and also in a similar sort of sense of gratitude to the institution that was supporting me and, you know, how grateful I am for the foundation. I wanted to make sure that I was doing the kind of thing that the foundation and all of its members would be proud of and be able to, not only from like a self-aggrandizing sense, you know, point to me as someone who was a success, but also point to me as someone who used the tools that the foundation provided me as a way to, you know, better the world in whatever way I saw fit. So that was something that I thought about a lot as an undergrad. Yeah, I think I think you're getting at something that I've felt a lot over the past couple of years. It's a tough angle to come at with anything other than gratitude and maybe burden's the wrong word, but you know, you want to do something great. Yeah, it's hard. And then of course, if you talk to alums from, you know, decades prior to you and they're like, oh yeah, I mean, I felt that too. But like, it's an element of, yeah, how do I pay it forward in a sense and, and help other people get to have the opportunities that I have. And also too, I mean, from a, from a, from a larger sense, and I imagine you'll find this when you graduate, we graduate without student loan debt. And that is um, among the other, you know, multitude of benefits that the foundation provides a scholar. It also, <laughs> it was great for the first couple of years after I graduated to like kind of screw around and figure out what I wanted to do because I didn't have to worry about like a constantly approaching Dead yeah. deadline. I don't um, think that's a, a luxury that, you know, being 19 that I think about too much that, yeah, maybe you do have a couple more years after college that are are a gift. So you, you like you mentioned, you said that once you uh, got out of college, you had some experimenting, some bouncing around. I'd love to hear what you, what you did with that time. In a sort of similar way to like a nice teacher or professor thinking I was interested in giving me an opportunity. Um, a professor that I'd had in the multimedia department at the J School was connected with a consortium of universities and colleges around the country called News 21. And the idea was it's graduate and undergraduate journalism students working on a um, an annual reporting project about different topics of interest. Um, and so as part of that in 2012, there was a project called Who Can Vote, which is all about ballot access, um, particularly around states that had changed voter ID requirements. And so we spent seven months reporting on minority ballot access in four um, southeastern states. And we also, our largest project was a 50-state comprehensive freedom of information request that basically took lawmakers at their word and said, like, okay, if you think voter fraud is real in terms of voter in-person voter impersonation Mm -hmm. fraud, that would photo ID would alleviate Let's see how often that happens. And we came up, and this was, you know, God, it was 10 years ago, but we determined that it doesn't happen to any large degree. It was, you know, a tiny, 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 tiny amount. Um, but that was a really great project. Um, we lived in Phoenix, which wasn't so great. Um, when it rains somewhere in the Valley of the Sun, which is the area that Phoenix is in, it creates what's called a haboob, a dust storm. It's Arabic for dust storm. And so you end up with a just debilitating dust storm so yeah it was it was i mean i got to go to the grand canyon that was super cool um we went to a bunch of like ghost towns um it was you know it was a nice it was a nice summer in a good newsroom and i'm really proud of the work that we um put out as a group and so at the end of it i was sort of like oh, i don't feel like going back home to detroit like i had a lot of friends from undergrad who had moved to san francisco and so and i had spent a summer of my undergrad um with the foundation in San Francisco and I really liked it. And so I figured, well, I'm already this far out. I may as well just go to San Francisco and try and find a job. You finally found the right climate. There it is. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, I didn't stay there, but I was there for a couple of months um, to help my friends move in. But I ended up uh, deciding that I should probably just move home. So I moved back home to Detroit, uh, the suburbs with my family, um, interned uh, at WDET, which is the one of the public radio stations in Detroit. Um, worked there for about five months, really liked it, um, had some pieces on air, really felt like, yep, this is the right path for me. Applied for an internship at NPR in DC in January after I graduated. Um, was there for six months um, working on their arts and culture desk, which was super fun, a really great place to work. Just um, I can't speak highly enough about the NPR internship program. And then um, I didn't know what to do, and I I didn't particularly like DC, but I you know I liked the work I was doing, and I was optimistic about the ability to potentially get what is known as a permit temp job. So. Um, this has changed a lot, but it's still kind of a problem with uh, National Public Radio in D.C. They hire, there aren't a lot of open positions, and so they end up hiring interns who are very eager to take work at pretty generous and benefited positions, but on time-limited mm-hmm. contracts. And so um, I wasn't particularly keen on that. And so um, I ended up moving back home, um, spent a lot of time on Twitter, and saw that Eater, the um, now it's owned by Vox, but at the time it was an independent company. Um, it's a network of city-specific food and bar um, yeah. blogs. Was hiring for a Detroit editor. And since I was living with my parents in Metro Detroit and had a lot of friends who were moving into the um, downtown core of the city, I thought, like, I, I could do this. I like yeah. food. Did this position allow you to not to be naive, but go try all restaurants and nightlife? Well, they didn't. They didn't cover your food, like your okay, food costs. Right. But you were encouraged. I mean, it was you weren't a food reviewer, right? But also, like restaurants and bars didn't understand that, and so they would treat me really nicely. Like I went to this one restaurant I remember once with a friend, and the problem is I'm a I'm a diet type one diabetic vegetarian, so like. <laughs> A lot of places like dessert places or like butchers were not places I was going to eat, but I would bring friends with me to do that for me. Um, And so uh, we went to this one restaurant and it was like not cheap, but they, they knew I worked for Eater and they just kept bringing things out that they absolutely, like things that weren't on the menu. We had an incredible, I mean, it was an incredible, it's one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. But yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was a really, you know, I, I was paid to like hang out in bars and talk to people opening restaurants and it, a cool part about that job now a decade later is that a lot of the people that I was talking to that were like sous chefs or like under chefs at different places at the time now have really successful restaurants um, in the city that are doing really really well that they had sort of dreamed up in chatting with me I mean I'm, I'm not taking I'm not taking credit for the success at all yeah so it's cool to be like I remember when you were a sous chef over here and now you have like one of the city's best restaurants um so that was super fun but um, I ended up getting um, tapped to apply for a producer job at a public radio talk show here in Boston at WBUR, um, the show On Point, um, which is produced in Boston but distributed nationally. And so um, a full-time job with benefits felt more Good desirable place. than the opportunity than the opportunity to live in an architectural right. landmark. Um, even though looking back, I kind of wish I had done that, um, as happy as I am with my life here, I'm sort of like, oh, that would have been great. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I probably was not totally qualified for the job, but I, um, I got it and, uh, moved here 
in fall of 2013, so a year after I graduated. Um, yeah, and I worked there for four years, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Catalyze. This is Tucker Stillman from the Class of 25 taking a quick break from the show to share about our featured and upcoming stories from the Moorhead King Scholar Media team. First up, Sarah Chacron and Rhea Patel from the Class of 25 have launched the Moorhead King Self-Starter Series. Be sure to check out their story about how our classmate, Mercy Atticola, is filling a need on Carolina's campus one fingernail at a time. You may also be interested in reading a feature on Lily Roberts on which economic policies could reduce poverty and inequality post-COVID-19. Lily is class of 2012 and managing director of the Center for American Progress. That story is by the Scholars Media team, Laurel Mobert from the class of 25. I'll also have a story out soon featuring Brad Ives, class of 86, and founder of the advisory firm Credo ESG Solutions. You can find all these stories and more on our website, moreheadcane.org or on social media. And now back to the show. So now you're you're a full-fledged journalist. You're you've kind of situated yourself into these into a cool role. Um I want to ask about the Harvard Divinity School's uh, religious literacy project that you worked on. Uh, and it says that some of the questions you were asking were, what is the role of religion and spirituality and human experience? Where does this come into play? And tell me more. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about Ministry of Ideas, which is a podcast I'm the senior, I'm actually still the senior producer of. It's a Google group. I mean, it's a glorified Google group, but there's a group of folks called Sonic Soiree. In pre-pandemic times, we would meet monthly at different people's homes and the gist of it was you would is a feast for the belly and for the ear. And so you would bring an audio piece that you were working on or a problem you had, and you would also bring a dish to pass. Through that, through my involvement in that, I got a, a cold call from this Harvard Divinity School student, Zachary Davis, six years ago, I think. Um, and he was like, I'm thinking about working on this podcast in partnership with the Boston Globe's Ideas section. What do you know about audio? Um, Zach is incredible. He's very convincing. He's very thoughtful. He's he's a lot of these deep questions that you're describing are things that come from his area of work. He's a student of divinity. He also is just a super curious guy. Um, so he and I met a couple of times and it felt like, oh, this could work because he wanted to make a podcast, but he didn't know anything about audio. The Religious Literacy Project at the Harvard Divinity School is basically the idea that the work that a divinity school like Harvard is doing is really limited by its exposure to the outside. So how can we make people think about the ideas that we're exploring here within the walls of this institution? And so part of that was this podcast. Um, and so we, our first season was pretty great because we had a, like a, we had a, a friend on the inside at the Boston Globe. So we had any episode we had would have a companion column version in the, on the Boston Globe's Sunday ideas section. Um, it was an incredible, it is an incredible opportunity and it's something that I've really enjoyed. Um, did an episode. I was, I've always been super interested in the world's fairs. And so I put together an episode about um, just the idea of a world's fair and sort of like what that says about who we are as a collective society and whether or not the things that we glean from different world's fairs throughout the history of the institution have changed or not, and whether or not there's any place for it in the future. Obviously, this was pre-pandemic. So the idea of a huge international collection of people talking about things at another country, like obviously that's not going to happen anymore. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's been a really, it's been a really rewarding and and helpful um, side project because my bosses, both in my previous job and also my current job, are absolutely within the rights to say that's competitive with the work that you do on a daily basis. You can't do that, but um, they both they both were really generous and said. Um, you know, I think it's important that you be creative. And if that's something you want to do on your own time, like by all means, keep going. So, um, yeah, that's been super fun. Um, yeah. What's something that's been on your mind or that's stirred something up for you lately? So it's funny when you email me about meaning, um, Zach, my host, um, throughout the pandemic has been just, Zach is very convincing. As I mentioned, I mean, he convinced me to do this job for no pay. Um, um, so he, um, he reached out to a bunch of different big thinkers and, and, and some musicians and just people whose, whose perspective he respected and asked them how they find meaning in their life. And so, um, he's had a mini series for the last couple of weeks called mean, like meaning, and it's just been like the pursuit of meaning and sort of looking at, um, how we define a meaningful life or how we find meaning in the work that we do, especially in a time of, uh, trouble that we're currently going through. Um, and so listening to those episodes has been really, really, really rewarding. Um, I wasn't involved in the recording or editing process of these, um, sort of the benefit of being a senior producer is that I can, um, cast off work to other people in the group, but, um, it's been really, you know, it's been surprising to listen to Zach, who I see as like an incredibly dynamic and, and thoughtful and interesting and interested person sort of wrestle publicly with, um, concerns about whether or not the work he's doing is valuable or meaningful and sort of talk through it with people who feel differently about their own work and about the work he's doing. So yeah, just sort of, I, I think exploring the question of, of how you find personal meaning has been a, a real and hearing it played out through these episodes has been really, really rewarding and, and really sort of dug at me um, as I work here yeah. from my kitchen. <laughs> with the cats nearby. Was there a response that, uh, impacted you greatly to Zach's work? I mean, I think just hearing Zach explore it has been really impactful. And I've let him know that um, because he strikes me as someone who doesn't question himself and isn't doubtful and just knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And to hear him talk about his own doubts and concerns and worries, it's been gratifying to hear somebody who I respect and value so much um, be publicly vulnerable, um, as cruel as that sounds. I think I think oh, that's yeah. just been really that's been really gratifying and 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 helpful. I've thanked him for that opportunity. So uh, definitely want to touch on the masterpiece project before we go. Could you talk about maybe a f- favorite memory? Yeah. So it was funny when you asked about like finding meaning and like personal meaning in the work I do, and I sort of had to think about my five years at Masterpiece. Um, I grew up watching Masterpiece with my, Masterpiece Mystery with my dad. Um, we loved watching um, British people murder each other on Thursday nights and um, on PBS. And I felt really guilty leaving my daily public radio talk show um, at the start of the um, first Trump administration to go work for um, a British period drama on public television that felt like I was shrinking away from the responsibility as a person interested in like why things happen and how they happen and who they happen to. But working on the show, working on Masterpiece and seeing people's responses to it has been really gratifying. And I think a real highlight of that for me was working on our 50th um, anniversary documentary project, um, Making Masterpiece, three episodes looking at 
how and why a British period drama exists on public television and how that's connected to the original vision of what American public broadcasting should be. Um, working working on the show and talking to um, the former FCC chairman, Newton Minow, who has just been like, a, as a media nerd, has been a lifelong, I don't want to say hero, because that ascribes a little more um, meaning to his work than I would feel comfortable doing, but definitely like a, a, a curiosity of mine. Um, he gives a famous speech. He gave a famous speech in the sixties calling television a vast wasteland, which I would hate for him to see what we have now. But um, <laughs> my, uh, my editor on this project, she and I, we were using audio from his speech um, before um, a national association of broadcasters meeting. I think it was 1961, if I remember correctly. And I was watching one of the 2020 presidential debates, and I was curious about who was on the board that decides the presidential debate commission. I was like, who's on this board? You know, like who's making these choices? And because it was one of the debates that was just a train wreck. Not that they weren't all train wrecks, but like one of the ones that was really, really messy. You had to watch, but it was, it was, yeah, it was so entertaining. Oh yeah, it was amazing, but it was terrible. Yeah. So I, I looked on the debate commission's website and I was like, oh my God, Newton Minow is one still alive and two on this debate commission. And so my editor was like, you should email him. And I was like, oh, okay. So I did. And this man, he's like mid nineties, like not a young man, replied immediately and was like, I would be so excited to talk to you for your project. I love Masterpiece. And I think it is exactly. I was wondering, I was like, he's gotta be pretty Oh, he's not young. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got to talk to him for an hour. Um, it was amazing because he just, you know, he he's very used to talking about the vast wasteland speech. It's a highlight of any sort of media history of America for the last 100 years. Um, but he also, you know, he would just he gave this long circuitous answer about things he was proud of working at the Federal Communications Commission. And he talked about how because he somehow got funding for the Sesame Workshop because I can't remember the specifics, but somehow it had to do with like somebody had donated to Barry Goldwater a long time ago and Barry Goldwater felt good about that. And so he helped support the creation of the corporation for Volo broadcasting, which is the reason why I have a job today. So, or I've had a career at all really. So like that was super cool to hear. Um, and yeah, it was just incredible to talk to this person. who said such a, you know, he'd get these sort of weird asides about like, well, you know, Mr. Kennedy, meaning Robert Kennedy, um, and I were wandering around because he worked on the um, one of the two. He maybe worked on both. One of Adelaide Stevenson's campaigns for president in the fifties. And I was just like, my God, this man has just impact been in touch with and impacted so much. He's done. Yeah, it all. he's done it all, and he's just like you know, and he's like not. It's not humble bragging. He's not. Like, he's just sort of. I, I mean, you know, he knew why I was talking to him, but he was very much just very generous at this time. Very thoughtful. Very interesting. And it was. Um, yeah, that was really a highlight. Um, yeah, because, you know, we, we speak to, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to the actors and writers and producers who make our masterpiece shows. And I think a lot of those conversations are really meaningful and end up being really, really thoughtful and in-depth conversations about the creative process. But, you know, for me as a student of history, who to get to talk to Newton Minow was really just a, a true highlight um, of my career. So I'm pretty proud about that. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Nick, thank you so much, um, not only for, for talking to me today, but also, you know, for helping me with all the questions that I've had about podcasting in general. Um, I definitely look up to you in that way. And I recommend that anyone interested in media and journalism reach out because uh, you were so helpful and quick with responses to me. Oh, well, Benny, I really, I'm, I'm grateful for you for uh, 
stoking my ego and, and talking to me uh, <laughs> for this project. And I, um, as much as I hate listening to my own voice, I look forward to uh, hearing the edit on this. All right. Well, thanks so much, Nick. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah. Be in touch. Thank you for listening to Catalyze. I'm your host, Benny Klein, and that was Nick Anderson. This episode was edited and produced by me and Sarah O'Carroll from Moorhead Kane Communications. If you liked the episode and want to let us know, or have a suggestion for who you want to hear from next, shoot us an email at communications at moorheadkane.org or on Twitter or Instagram at moorhead-kane.